my dude, <laughs> please think about this for a minute. Which, you know, and you'd think, because when you think of Sam and Dean, at least for me, it's like Dean is like the bad boy. Mm-hmm. But Sam is the one who rejects patriarchal authority. So it makes sense that he's Lucifer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, in our episode about heroism, uh-huh. we talked about how uh, Sam is sort of a Byronic hero. Sorry, flashback. Would you disagree? No, that's the thing. I wouldn't. He is. Although, again, I haven't seen enough Supernatural to be really comfortable judging everything, but, like, I think they're both kind of Byronic heroes because it's like, we're emotionally damaged, so the women love us. <laughs> that's what Rachel said. I, I, I disagree. I don't see Dean as a Byronic hero in the same way. Um, because Dean hasn't, like, suffered the loss of a romantic partner, and because, like, Sam sort of struggles with questions of morality. Um, I think Sam doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Sam's morality is very, like, internally determined, and so that gives him a sort of flexibility that Dean doesn't have. Um, You're right, Dean. His morality isn't necessarily good, but it's externally enforced. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Dean is like, has this externally determined system of morality. Um, And sometimes he like fails to live up to his own moral system, but it's like always there, you know? Yeah. He is a lawful neutral. He, He is. Yeah, he is. Dean Winchester is a lawful neutral, and that is a sentence I never thought I would say. You know what to hell. You know what other character? I am like, I cannot believe more people don't say this, but mm-hmm. the other character from something that I look at and I immediately go, that character is a lawful neutral. That's like their determining character trait. Hermione Granger. Oh, yeah. Oh, she yeah. Is. Yeah. Yeah. People will always argue and be like, no, she's lawful good. And it's, no, she's no. not. <laughs> she's like, you could die or worse, be expelled. It's like, girl, you got your priorities wrong, but okay. Yeah. And she's like face down, like murderers and all sorts of supernatural threats. And her greatest fear is failing an exam. Like, like woman, okay, we get it. You're a millennial. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and she, uh, like, the whole thing with Rita Skeeter, where she, like, keeps her in a jar, like. That's yeah. insane. That's extrajudicial imprisonment. <laughs> like, holy shit. Yeah, it's like, Hermione does not care about. She doesn't fuck around. Good and bad. <laughs> she cares about, like. Factually right and wrong. Yes. 
I've never thought about that before, but you're 100% right and you should say it. <laughs> um, but I never thought that I would be thinking about parallels between Hermione Granger right. and Dean Winchester, but <laughs> they like are very similar in that it like they care a lot more about like what is objectively right and wrong than what they feel is good or bad. Yeah. Right and wrong or good and good or bad is just a good um dichotomy. And I think we also see like in Supernatural, like sometimes Sam makes the wrong choice because he thinks something is good or bad or he's wrestling with issues of gray morality. Um and Dean when Dean makes the wrong choice, it's always because he stumbles across a flaw in his moral system or he doesn't live up to that moral system. Mm-hmm. It's never because he's like struggling with the question. It's he has an answer, just sometimes it's the wrong. Yes. Uh, anyways, that was a pretty God, long digression. Such a an hour long tangent. <laughs> Uh, yeah uh so i think i think that's all i've got about hook hand and religion unless you've got really all i wanted to say about it was that just i thought it was interesting but it completely flipped the usual ideas we have about religious symbolism on their head Mm -hmm. where it's not that the religious symbolism can expel evil spirits but that the religious symbolism is the source of evil spirits. <laughs> that's that's really what it, I wanted to say. Like, it, it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Anyways, completely unrelated aside. Sorry, everybody. No, no, it's okay. Um, I think we should move on though and talk about asylum. Asylums. Yes, that was a very interesting. Ooh, so much research. Asylum is a really interesting episode. And I think Supernatural in general has some feelings about mental health and mental health institutes uh, and healthcare around mental health issues um, in ways that are probably not all that uncommon in American media because our culture doesn't do a great job of dealing with it. So we're left with a lot of anxieties around it. Yeah, but I don't know that much about, like, the history of asylums, Um, but you mentioned that there's, like, some pretty good historical reasons for all of the anxieties Americans have about asylums. There are. Asylums have been a big political issue in America for a very long time. For example, um, a lot of people have probably heard there's a famous reporter in the 19th century, Nellie Bly. In 1887, she stayed up for several days. She, She checked into a boarding house. She stayed up for several days. And then she went out into the public area of the boarding house and started saying that like everybody was crazy and you know her hair was disheveled and her eyes were wild because she hadn't slept in several days and she just kind of popped off until somebody called the police and they were like this woman is insane and so they committed her to the women's lunatic asylum and i believe this was in the state of new york and then she you know she sat around and she wrote an expose on how the patients were treated poorly and how you could be 
perfectly sane and they would still treat you like you were insane. And these are problems that did not go away in spite of all the exposés that she and many other people wrote. And in fact, um, for a very long time in American history, if you, if you were mentally ill, especially people who were mentally disabled, like if you had a mentally disabled child, the doctors would be like, you should put your child in an institution. And so there were many asylums around the country to house people who were mentally ill or had mental disabilities. And all of these places were terrible. There, some of them were probably all right, but especially if it was like a state-run one for people who couldn't necessarily afford to send anyone to a private hospital, it was really bad. And um, honestly, the political history of civil rights for mentally ill people and mentally disabled people in the U.S. is very long and very bad. And you could write books and books and books and many podcasts on that subject. So like, I'm not going to get into all of it. I'm going to talk about a specific institution called the Willowbrook School that was on Long Island in the 20th century to house children with mental disabilities because it's a really good example of both how those institutions were bad and also how they were dissolved. And um, the Willowbrook State School on Long Island was opened in 1947. It was there's this whole thing where originally it was intended for um, children with mental disabilities and then World War II happened, so they converted it into a military hospital. The war ended, they made it, they put it back for its original purposes. It was a horrible place. In the 1950s, doctors, who I'm not going to name because they don't deserve names, deliberately infected children there with hepatitis. Wow. They could study how it spread because they knew it was a virus, but they didn't know how it spread. And they were like, it's the 50s. What are medical ethics? <laughs> and they were, they were monsters. And so they would infect these children with hepatitis to study hepatitis. Um, this went on. In 1965, the school it was intended to house 4,000 people. 1965, there were 6,000 people living here. And Senator Robert Kennedy visited it, and in a televised interview, he said, I think that at the State Institution for the Mentally Retarded, I apologize, but at that time, that was not an insult. That was like a medical term. He said, he's like, I think at the State Institution for the Mentally Retarded, and I think that particularly at Willowbrook, we have a situation that borders on a snake pit. And that the children live in filth, that many of our fellow citizens are suffering tremendously because of lack of attention, lack of imagination, and lack of adequate manpower. I think that all of us are at fault, and I think that it's just long overdue that something be done about it. And he said this on television, and really not that much was done. Later in um, 1971, a group of parents who had children children at Willowbrook were protesting budget cuts at school. And two social workers there, Elizabeth Lee and Ira Fisher, let a reporter from the Staten Island Advance, Jane Curtin, come, they let her in to, to report on the protest. And several of the parents were arrested at this protest. And she wrote an article called Inside Cages, which you can find online, 
where she described just the terrible conditions. Despite that, not a lot was done. But then in 1972, just a few months later, a television reporter named Geraldo Riviera, um, he, a doctor actually apparently called him and was like, hey, this place is horrible and you need to come here. So he showed up unannounced with a camera crew and started going into buildings. And he wrote an expose, not wrote, I'm sorry. He, he, um, they filmed this expose called Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace and put it on television. And it's, you can watch it. It is horrifying. Um, I'm not gonna describe, it's very bad. But he, you know, they released this and the day before it came out, like they, the people at Willowbrook knew it was coming out and they fired the doctor and they fired Elizabeth Lee because of this. And it was huge because people could see literally these children lying in piles of excrement on the floor. And it was, it was horrifying. It was disgusting. They were like moaning in pain. It was, it's a terrible thing to see. And now the whole country can see it. And the impact was huge. Um, terms of socially, uh, actually, John Lennon apparently knew the reporter hmm. and they organized a benefit concert that had like Stevie Wonder and Roberta Flack and all these very famous bands and they raised money for the children who were imprisoned at Willowbrook. And in 1975, just a couple years later, the governor signed a legal document that essentially said that the school had to start moving the children into community facilities and provide them services so that they could stay in the community. By 1986, most of the children were gone and, wait, no, I'm sorry. Um, by 1986, I think that they closed it down. Okay. And um, there's people there, like a former patient, Bernard Cabrillo, I think is how the name was pronounced, became a patient advocate for the state. He was a man who had cerebral palsy. His family, I think, had left him there, and he had difficulty speaking. Mm. But he became a patient advocate after that. And I think he's still alive today. He retired recently. And all of this led to, you know, with a lot of other things, led to people, like, making laws to protect disabled people from, like, the kind of abuse that happened at Willowbrook, and led to, there was a movement in the 70s and 80s in America to move mentally disabled people from institutions to the community. And it's not a perfect system. There's a lot wrong with it. But what we had before was monstrous. There is also a thing where in the 80s after, because so the school was closed and it was abandoned. And there was a thing where there was a series of murders that may have taken place there. They did find a body buried on the old Willowbrook campus. Um, let's not get into that, but there's a documentary of, called Cropsy. Okay. About, and it's the, it's, it's a whole nother thing. Okay. Yeah. So if you guys are interested in that, go check out that documentary. It's really interesting. It's terrible. It's like it, it had to, you know, consume a few more lives before it could let go. Wow. Truly 
if any place is cursed, it was that place. But yeah, like I said, there was a movement to move people from institutions to the community. Mm-hmm. And as a result, institutions like the Willowbrook School were closed and in many cases just kind of abandoned. And, you know, as a result, you have these enormous abandoned buildings that are bouldering that have a terrible history. And like we said with Willowbrook, sometimes like actual crimes happening there. And if you live anywhere near a large abandoned building, you know that teenagers will break into it. (laughs) And that only adds to sort of the, you know, the urban legend surrounding this is created by like, it's it's an old moldering building, it has a terrible history, Mm -hmm. mental illness is scary to people, and there's stereotypes and stigma surrounding it. And all of this creates just, you know, the environment where you have a ghost hunter show and they're like, we're going to go to this asylum, the ghosts. Yeah, I think Supernatural strikes me as having an unexpected degree of sympathy for the mentally ill yeah. or the kind of show that it is. Like it, um, it definitely still addresses these fears and anxieties um, but it often focuses pretty heavily on the abuses of people in positions of power over the mentally ill. And I think Asylum is a really good example of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's basically about that. <laughs> like the And, you know, like, they were performing unethical medical experiments. And like, like I said, that's not unrealistic or even uncommon. Not even getting into um, lobotomies here. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, the, even when it's specifically electroshock therapy, but I think the broader point is um, that they will perform unethical medical experiments. Yeah. And I think actually electroshock is interesting because that's like also how people are executed or have been executed in the U.S. in the past. Yeah. Um, So, like, specifically electroshock therapy is, like, an interesting choice because of its connection with execution. Execution, yeah. Yeah. I I don't know much about other Ghost Hunter shows' handlings of asylums aside from BuzzFeed Unsolved. (laughs) Do you have any sense of what those are like and how they compare to how Supernatural handles it? A little bit. They're all kind of, you know, when you watch it, you're like, there's no ghosts here. These are just some, like, (laughs) some drunk teenagers who are now drunk adults, and they're like, we can make money off of this. Um, (laughs) They also, they go to a lot of tuberculosis sanitariums that have been abandoned, which is, it's Mm -hmm. a similar story. Mm-hmm. or a bunch of sanitariums they discovered antibiotics and then like that they didn't need them anymore so a lot of them were abandoned like the Waverly Sanatorium I think is the most famous and it's a remarkably similar thing where there you know there's this terrible fear of tuberculosis and that slow and agonizing death mm-hmm. that made people want to 
exile people with tuberculosis from society. And so I think it's kind of the same essential thing. I imagine that places that have had significant uh, leper populations also have a similar thing with former leper colonies. Yeah. I know there's one in Hawaii where um, Mm -hmm. um, there's like a Catholic group that designated as island. They're like, all the lepers here. Yeah. Actually, my uh, my mom's college roommate's dad was like the director of that leper colony for a while. Wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Random connection. <laughs> Random connection. Yeah, I think asylum is really interesting too, in the context of Americana. Because obviously other countries also have to address this issue of mental health in some way, um, and other cultures do. And other Western cultures um, have often addressed it in similar ways to the U.S. Especially uh, England. Yeah. But I think about, like, like England and Europe more generally – Uh, And I just don't have this sense that they have, like, asylums standing empty the way that the U.S. does. And in some ways, it's probably, like, a function of space. Yeah, I was going to say, in no way actually confirm this, but they don't have land to waste in Europe. (laughs) And another thing I just thought of is that while you definitely hear haunted hospital stories in England, they don't have reality television about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know that much about, like, English reality television, but, <laughs> um, yeah. It's definitely something you associate more with America than anywhere else. Yeah, uh, and, like, like, uh, so I spent a semester living in France, uh, mm-hmm. when I was in college, um, and, like, there were definitely, like, spooky places that had, like, spooky stories about them. But, uh, like, usually it was more like a bunch of people died of the plague here rather than, like, yeah, this was a mental hospital. Um, and I feel like that really strong awareness of this history of medical abuses is an interesting aspect of U.S. horror. Um, yeah. I don't- like I said earlier, there's a history of like Nellie Bly and other reporters writing mm-hmm. exposés about you know abuse in medical facilities. Yeah. Yeah, I don't you had mentioned something about other horror movies that are like set in asylums. That does sound vaguely familiar. I'm trying to think. I know there's um what Ravenhurst Asylum that's a movie that's based on I think a um an Edgar Allan Poe story. Mental illness is a very common theme in gothic fiction mm-hmm. of all kinds. Is it's about a fear of losing control and also the fear of, you know, people who have lost control. Like, have you, if you've read Jane Eyre, you know how that one ends. <sighs> oh, the Bronte sisters. <laughs> oh, the Bronte sisters. <laughs> and, um, 
in a lot of Edgar Allan Poe stories moving into American Gothic, like the, mm. the telltale heart, the narrator is like, I'm not crazy. And then they go to explain how they've completely lost it and, you know, killed a man. And then you have the fall of the House of Usher, which is about incest and, you know, potentially like maybe just say madness. And um, have you ever read A Rose for Emily? I have not. I have not read A Rose for Emily. No. Well, the whole thing is that, you know, there is a, a rich woman in town and oh, she had a boyfriend, but he left her. And then a bunch of, also the boyfriend was possibly gay. Also race issues, because that's Southern Gothic. Anyway, eventually she dies, and the neighbors go into her house, and they find that she has the boyfriend's body preserved, oh. and it's been there for, lo, these many years. And there's, again, a theme of madness there, of, like, you know, necrophilia. And yeah. in Gothic fiction, it's about things that are scary and potentially grotesque and mental illness especially in those days when there was absolutely nothing you could do about it it was very frightening it was frightening to see somebody act that way it was frightening to imagine that you could lose control in that way mm -hmm. yeah um, I mean I think you know people still find a lot of anxiety in that I think we were talking before about one of the scariest things about mental illness is both not understanding it and seeing yourself in it at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on this podcast, we've talked before about the role of liminal spaces um, in horror and how something that is both and neither will often evoke a sense of anxiety and often plays a large role in horror. And I think you see that here as well um, yeah. in how people see mental illness as something strange and foreign, but almost familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because the United States healthcare system does not do a good job of dealing with mental illness at a very large proportion of Americans have some kind of mental illness. So it's very common. It's almost certain that anybody, like, they know somebody who is mentally ill. There's also a very good chance that that person, or, you know, it could be you yourself, has a very difficult time dealing with mental illness and possibly cannot, doesn't have access to the kind of health care you need help you deal with mental illness yeah yeah actually i wonder now that you bring it up i wonder what role the united states's comparative lack of access to health care plays in the way that healthcare often features prominently in our horror stories i've noticed a lot of a lot of modern american stories are dickensian in ways that there wouldn't necessarily be if they took place in other countries, because it's like, of course we give sick people medicine. What, what kind of animals do you take us for? <laughs> in America, it's, it's like, oh, it's like, oh God, you know, it's like a, the crying game. It's like, oh, a man robs a bank because, you know, his wife needs surgery. That's perfectly reasonable. That happens 
I'm happy all the time. What are you talking about? Or I've, I remember when I was like 18, I got really into this like hyper specific genre of movies and books, uh, which in hindsight is like really weird. But I read a lot of books about high school students who discover that they have cancer and then die. Um, and like after they discover they have cancer, they start dating someone and like mm-hmm. the last like our stars. I mean, I never read that because I was like had like moved on by the time that came out. But yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah basically. Um and it's like it's amazing to me that this is like a genre, right? And it's like, yes, cancer is still an issue no matter what country you live in, but like a lot of people in the US die. In other countries, they don't have coin jars with pictures of children on them in your <laughs> local restaurant because the family can't afford the medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Or like uh, something that happened here. This is like moving on from the subject of healthcare, but the US in general is not great at like helping support people when they're at their lowest. You're expected to deal with it on your own because Puritanism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, those Puritans. It's ruining been everything. It's been years, and they're still ruining everything. <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell. God damn it. <laughs> A supernatural episode about the ghost of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, that would be fucking incredible. Yes. There's, well, have you ever heard of um, Greyfriars Kirkyard? That's, that's another story, though. Oh. Uh, no, I I mean the name rings a bell, but I like don't know what that is. It's a Scottish graveyard that's supposedly haunted by um this infamous witchfinder general type dude. Oh, okay. Religion. And it's incredibly haunted. And the way they, they know this is because one night a homeless man broke into a um crypt because mm-hmm. it was raining and cold and he wanted to sleep. And so he went down into the crypt, and then the wooden floor broke under him, and he fell into a pit where they had buried plague bodies, and it was full of these slime-covered bodies. So he claws his way out of the crypt, pit, rather, and goes hurtling out of the crypt at top speed, as you can imagine anyone would. Unfortunately, at this exact time, a security guard for the graveyard happened to be walking at which point a man covered in slime comes bursting through the doors screaming into the night and so he and the dog take off screaming also and then the next morning they come back and, like, what the fuck? and apparently that incident supposedly um released the spirits into the graveyard and ever since it's been super haunted okay good to know <laughs> i have a podcast for you but that's again later <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah let's see what was oh i was just gonna say uh we have like wildfires here yeah every summer and like every summer somebody's house burns down Mm -hmm. um and so there's like also like always a jar where it's like help these folks rebuild their house or if there isn't a wildfire there's a flood so you know whatever either way Um, yeah it's like and like I've, like, never heard of that in, like, a European country or, like, 
places like Japan or Taiwan or anywhere like that. Like I've never heard of. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, they like actually like help support their populations, but yeah. (laughs) Oh, especially in Japan, like with the earthquakes, they have it down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like everywhere you go, there's like a jar and it's like, or like you're checking out at Safeway and it's like, do you want to donate to like, the March of Dimes or whatever. And it's like, I mean, it's great that we've like come up with options, but in other countries, they don't have these issues. Yeah. Yeah. In, I don't know. I just think that it's interesting that our lack of support systems for people often shows up in our literature in interesting ways. Um, Have you read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Yes, but it was in junior high, so I don't... Hey, my dad let me read it, and then my mom got real mad at him. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, let's see. Do we have anything else we want to talk about? We can keep talking, but I think if... I think if we're done, I might stop recording. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think that's that's sort of what we have. Yeah. All right. So so thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you like this episode, please give us a thumbs up uh, and rate and review us on iTunes or reblog us on Tumblr or retweet us on Twitter or whatever on whatever platform you're on. <laughs> uh, if you don't like this episode, please don't rate and review us, please email us and let us know how we can do better. Uh, You can hear our contact information in our end credits info. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you later on down the road. For the meantime, I'm driving. Dreams of the Past podcast is written, researched, and produced by Ray and Mish. You can reach them on Twitter at dreamspastpod.com. Tumblr at dreamsofthepastpodcast.tumblr.com and email at dreamsofthepastpodcast at gmail.com. Dreams of the Past Podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Please rate and review us. Thanks to Benjamin Geyer and Lynn Music for our theme song, Lonesome Ranger. I would tell you what the opinion is, but I don't I don't think you care that much about Paul Gross's directorial nope. choices. I knew it was gonna be due south and I knew I wouldn't care. <laughs> as much as I love you, I don't think I'm going to uh get involved in that particular one. <laughs> um <laughs> you don't want to care about due south with me? I will care from afar. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. So disappointing. <laughs> from a safe distance. From a safe distance, yes. <laughs>